Hear now the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and with justice. For this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us from it, that we would understand it, that we would hear with hearing ears and see with seeing eyes and understand with understanding hearts the message you have here for us. It is a message that we need to believe. It is a message that we need to trust God. It's a message that you're sending us the Savior we all need and that you sent the Savior we need and that we can trust him. So we ask your blessing upon us as we consider it together, and we ask for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage is about hope. It is about light coming into darkness. But I wanted to go to the end of our reading first to talk about what is really the most weighty words in the entire text of this passage. The zeal of the Lord of hosts We'll do this. God is zealous. The idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is certainly correct. It's not wrong, but it's incomplete. He is also zealous, Jesus, bold and brave. And Isaiah is saying that this God intends to accomplish, and what he intends to accomplish by his own initiative will occur with the zeal from the heart of no one less than the Lord of hosts. His passion is driving history toward the final triumph of grace in the messianic kingdom. You and I will never achieve this victory. This is a victory that God will achieve for himself and for us. 
we could never accomplish this kind of victory because most of us don't trust him that much and most of us don't really live completely for him that much. But God is solving the problem for us because his heart is not divided like ours is. God is solving our problem and that is the guarantee of our salvation. It is in his hands. When we are finally and fully glorified and enjoying him perfectly forever, we will look at one another and say, we didn't do this, God did this, and this is the triumph of his zealous grace. What does the word zeal tell us about the nature of God? My Hebrew lexicon defines, defines this word as ardor, zeal, or jealousy. The Hebrew word is a cognate with an Arabic verb meaning to become intensely red, suggesting the idea of color flooding a person's face with the flush of deep emotion within. The Hebrew word is used for a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife or for envy that drives human effort, or for love that burns in the hearts of both a bride and a groom. But this very word says something about God. It describes his passion for our, our salvation. Isaiah 42:13 compares God with a warrior psyching himself up before going to battle. He stirs up his zeal, Isaiah 65 tells us. And he sets it in parallel, your zeal and your might with the stirring of your inner parts, the emotion surging, as it were, within the being of God. I believe in the impassibility of God, by the way, but these uh, verbs, these passages mean something. That there is a zeal, a passion within God. When Jesus threw the crooks out of the temple, the text says he wove the whip himself. And the Apostle John quotes Psalm 69 to explain Jesus' boldness. Zeal for your house will consume me. God is not a wishy-washy personality. He is on fire for the triumph of his grace. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will do what? He will give us hope. And that hope will sustain us. And that's what I want to focus the balance of our time upon. This passage is about hope for people in darkness. When I was a kid, there was a television show on called Hee Haw. Now, I am from the state of Tennessee. And I do have relatives that could have been on this show. So I know what I'm talking about. But there was one particular... Uh, gig or gag in the show where they were all laying around in front of the home place and they were singing a song that was like this gloom despair and agony on me deep dark depression excessive misery if it weren't for bad luck I'd have no luck at all gloom despair and agony on me and at the end, they take another big, big swig out of their jug. In the context of darkness, the prophet lifted up, as it were, to see the future and to report back. He sort of goes into the future and then reports back to the present with his uh, passage. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, he does this in a very powerful way. 
What is Israel to do? Where is Israel's hope? Surrounded by nations who would devour her, led by a wicked king who does not worship God and who does not reign in righteousness. Where is the hope? Isaiah says it's in a child. A child will be born. Uh, Israel, hope for a child is going to be born and the government is going to be placed on his shoulders and he's going to reign on David's throne forever and even and ever and ever we're going to call him wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace but i want you to notice two or three things about this passage before we expound the text the first thing i want you to notice is that it is written in the past tense did you catch that when I read it? It's a prophetic idiom that Hebrew prophets use. They speak of the future in the past tense as if the future has already happened right now to show that the certainty of the promise of God is and his revealing it to his people is now coming through the prophet. You see that current circumstances in verse 1 and 2 of the passage are clear. They are in gloom. They are in darkness. But he speaks in the past tense of joy that he's going to bring to bear upon his people. You have multiplied uh, the nation. You have increased its joy. He doesn't say you will multiply the nation and you will increase joy. But he speaks of it as if it has already happened. Because the prophet is seeing not reality in his face, but that which transcends reality the way God sees the world. And the way God sees the world is he is zealous to accomplish what he has accomplished in the first advent and what he will accomplish in the second advent. And so the prophet gets a perspective on this. And so the prophetic past tense is designed to assure the children of Israel that though their circumstances now are grim and though their hope may be dim within their hearts, the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue them is certain. And so he uses future tense, I mean past tense language as if it has already occurred. There are two realms. There is the world that we see. There is the phenomenal. There is that world that we see in front of our faces. And if you look at this world and you look, as it were, at this country, as we're all in some sort of post-COVID or not post-COVID, mid-COVID malaise, God's word to us today is, though it feels oppressive, though it looks gloomy, though it looks like there's no hope, there's all kinds of hope because God is working out his plan according to his plan and nothing can stop it. God's not surprised by anything. We tend to see the world right in front of our face as it involves us. But the prophets help us get past our perspective and see a whole new perspective on what God is doing. Now he's comforting them with words that a child will come to sit on the throne of King David forever, but he brings that promise that only happens 600 years after he says it. And so God doesn't look at time necessarily exactly the same way you and I do. And so the second thing that I want you to notice in this passage is that the rescue comes from a child that is born for them. 
There's a child who's going to do a vicarious work for them on their behalf. Look at the language that is used of him in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That is, the one who comes, the one who sits on the throne of David, the one who will accomplish hope, everything we could ever hope or dream for, is both a child born of a virgin, Mary, but he's also a son given. He is the union of both humanity and deity in one person. And I, Isaiah gives us that hint. I don't even think Isaiah knew what he was saying. I know he didn't know what he was saying. Uh, he was moved by the Spirit of God. He didn't see how this would all work out. He understood in Isaiah 7, 14 that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. That happened uh, during Ahaz's reign, but it pointed to something beyond that. And so the child's birth is for his people, for the well-being of his people and the saving of his people, and our only hope is in that child. Our only hope is in that child. One more time. Our only hope is in that child. And we look elsewhere for hope all the time. The third thing before we dive into what I wanted to focus our time on is not only is the language past tense as if it has already happened, not only is a child going to be born for you to work on your behalf and accomplish your salvation, but notice the child has a kingly work to do. The language that is used in verse 6, the government will rest upon his shoulders, is uh, amazing. So a child, what's the answer to the crisis that God's people face? A wicked king surrounded by nations like jackals waiting to pounce on them as if prey? What is the answer? It is certain that a child will be born and will bear the kingship of God's people. But there will be no gloom for those who are uh, in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the ways of the sea and the land beyond the Galilean nations. And so, as we continue to look, we know that he will deliver them. By the way, the mention of Zebulun and Naphtali, where was Jesus, uh, where did he live his life? In Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? In Galilee. So the introduction of the one who's going to bring all the hope is in the part of the country where all the evil first came flooding in and all the darkness and oppression came in that way. So the coming of the sun to Galilee, to Nazareth, is the reversing of the darkness and the beginning of the shining of the light. Isn't it just like God to do it that way? Isn't it just like him to where... Uh, the curse of the covenant came to expression and the idolatry and infidelity and rebellion of Israel was most uh, powerfully pronounced is the place where the son is born. He was born in Bethlehem, but he lives and grows up in Nazareth. Now, I want us to look at four things that are said about this child who is to come. First, he's wonderful counselor. He is wonderful counselor. That is what he will be called. What does that mean? It means that he will be endowed. He will be filled with, as it were, supernatural 
wisdom. The word that he uses here describes him means that he will again be empowered with supernatural wisdom. Wonderful counselor. It's about as close as you can get in the Hebrew language in calling something or someone supernatural. Now you know what supernatural is. Above the natural. He has a wisdom that transcends and is far beyond any wisdom we can come in contact with outside of Holy Scripture. And of course, the point is obvious. Whereas in the present time, Ahaz trusts in the human wisdom to form an alliance with the pagan nation, which he's going to prove to be disastrous for Israel. In other words, Ahaz is a dummy. He's not wise. The child who is going to be born is going to be possessed of heavenly wisdom. The prophet kept saying to King Ahaz in Judah over and over again, don't make an alliance with Assyria in order to be spared from these two kings in the north. God is not going to let you fall to these two kings to the north. But Ahaz ignored the counsel, and guess who Israel fell to? Not the two kings in the north, but to Assyria. You see, his human wisdom made, he, made him think, Ahaz, that he was smarter than God. Oh, Isaiah, you're a prophet. You're a preacher. You don't know anything about warfare. You don't know anything about politics. You don't know anything about military alliances. You don't know anything about strategic political confederations. I do. I'm a king. That's my business. Go find yourself somewhere else to preach. But... Uh, Ahaz says, this is the way I'm going to preserve my throne. It's going to be the way I preserve the di dynasty of David. It's going to be the way I will preserve the nation Israel. And what happened to Ahaz? He lost his throne, the dynasty of David, and the nation because of his human wisdom. He wouldn't trust God. But the child who is going to be born is going to be wonderful counselor. He's going to be possessed of super natural wisdom and that is where your hope is so many of us live in gloom despair and agony because certain things occur in our country that are contra or against our point of view our point of understanding but the great hope of Christianity is in a child that will be born it's similar very similar to the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And it's also very similar to what Isaiah says about the servant who will come in Isaiah 53, 11. And he says, by his knowledge he will justify many. In other words, this wonderful counselor knows exactly what we need to be saved. He knows exactly what to do to save us. He knows exactly what we need to know in order to be saved as sinners. He's a wonderful counselor. But second, note that he is a mighty God. This child will be called Mighty God, El Gabor in Hebrew. That is, he will be God Almighty, God the warrior, the holy warrior. The Almighty God in the flesh. And here Isaiah is giving testimony to the deity of the Messiah in full flourish. He doesn't back down one inch. 
And uh, he doesn't say that the child will be like the mighty God. He says that the child will be called mighty God. And the New Testament gets this. It understands this. So John opens his gospel in verse 1 by saying the following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not like God, not just with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God. Paul speaks of this in Titus chapter 2 when he tells us that the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. No wonder the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The child that Isaiah says we're looking for will be God in the flesh. Third thing, and this one's a little sticky, especially if you're a theologian. He's not only called Wonderful Counselor, he's called Mighty God, but he's called Everlasting or Eternal Father. Now, that could be a little puzzling for some of us. I thought he was the Son, not the Father. Is this identifying the Son as just another name for the Father? Is this saying to us that the Son is just one mode or manifestation for, of God? The Father is one mode or manifestation of God. The Son is one mode or manifestation. And the Spirit is one mo mode or manifestation. Perish the thought. No, we are not modalist. We are Trinitarian. So this passage is not confusing the Messiah with God the Father, but is attributing to him the kingship or rule of God. In the Old Testament, kings were called what? Fathers. They were called fathers in the Old Testament. They were spiritual, political fathers of the people. Just like the Ten Commandments call upon us to honor our father and mother, so also we honor those God has placed in leadership over us. In the Old Testament, one of the ways that was shown was by calling kings fathers. And that he is called everlasting father means that he will be the ruler of his people. He will be their eternal king. He will be the endless monarch. And so the attributes of God's rule are ascribed to him in the phrase eternal father or everlasting father. It means that his reign will know no end. And of course, that is emphasized right here in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or the peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, and forevermore. He will be a king. His reign will never come to an end. The child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, a king whose reign will never, ever end for his people. We're not used to that. We elect leaders uh, every two years, and every four years we elect a president to be over us. But when this child who was born assumes the throne of the King David that will last forever, his government will never end. He will be a king forever. 
And that's where our hope is. Our hope is in his rulership. Next, he's called Prince of Peace. But that's not all. He will be called Prince of Peace. In verse 6, he's not only the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, but the Prince of Peace. That is, he's the one who's going to bring peace for his people. What's the answer to the crisis that the people face right now? A wicked king, nations attacking them. The answer is a child who's going to be the Prince of Peace. And Micah picks up on this in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where he says, He will arise and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Again, the New Testament understands that. And listen to how the New Testament speaks of the son who came into the world, of the child who was born, of the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 14, do you remember what the angel said about Jesus to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. In Luke 2, you see it uh, said to the shepherds. Or do you remember what Jesus himself said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or do you remember the preaching in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, where it is said, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. Or do you remember Paul saying in Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace. Or Colossians 1.20, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and that's why the author of Hebrews can end that book with this benediction. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, even Jesus our Lord, this child will be the one who will bring people peace. But what is peace? Peace is not merely the absence of war. Peace is not just no conflict, but peace is more than that. Peace is holistic. Peace has to do with a sense of well-being in every dimension of your life. A sense, a deep, sound sense of integrity and well-being that extends to every dimension of his life. And there's only one way any of this is going to be happened. First, a child has to be born. Second, he has to come back and return. We are living in the in-between times. In the Old Testament, these people heard this word from Isaiah, and they were anticipating the Messiah to come. But understand that their anticipation and understanding of the Messiah would come was that everything I've talked about this morning, everything I've read to you from an Isaiah 9, would happen immediately just like that. It would all be delivered up, as it were, on a platter. But what the Old Testament prophets didn't see is that he would come the first time as a suffering Savior to accomplish our salvation and to bring us peace with God. 
But the second time he comes, he doesn't come as a suffering servant. He comes as a reigning king as the book of Revelation presents him in chapter 1. He comes with vengeance on his enemies and he comes to set up and establish his rule upon the earth where the knowledge of God will cover the earth like the seas. Where everything that we don't have now. So just as the Old Testament believer look forward to the coming of Messiah, we are also living in between times. We've experienced the first advent and we see the reality of it, but we're anticipating the second advent when he comes again. And so you don't really see who this great Savior and King is until you see him in the light of both comings. Now, there are two things I want to say in closing. The first thing is that Isaiah makes it absolutely clear that Israel's hope has to be focused on the person of this child who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. It would be a shame, wouldn't it, to go through the Christmas season and all the beauty and sentiment attached to it and not believe in the one who is our peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your responsibility today is to believe in him. That is, stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your own wisdom. I have to admit that before I came to Christ, I thought I was smarter than God. I was pretty much the kind of person who thought, you know, Lord, if you just get off the throne for a few minutes and let me take over, I can fix a lot of what's going on. Why is it taking you? You got all power. You got all wisdom. Nothing can stand against you. Why are you taking so long to work this out? And uh, that's arrogant, beyond arrogance. That's hubris, as they say where I come from. Mendacity, lying too. But the wonderful glory of the gospel is God turns the lights on we are walking in darkness right now some of you don't you don't see it you don't see you need Jesus you just don't see it it doesn't add up uh, like there's scales on your eyes you just uh, somebody one year gave me a Christmas present called the magic eye do you know what that is where you have a picture within a picture you know about that hand up as Jerry Clower used to say Hand up, I have never seen a picture within the picture on a magic eye. Never one time. I'll hand it to my wife, she sees it. I hand it to my daughter, she sees it. Somebody comes over to visit, they see it. They even tell me what the picture looks like I should be seeing. And I still can't see it. I don't know why. But that's how some of you are about Jesus. You don't see it. You don't see how desperately you need a savior. You're walking in darkness. You're walking in confusion. You're, you're disoriented. You only live in one world. You only have the, the capacity for one thing. And until the spirit of God comes along and makes you alive and gives you spiritual uh, perception, the natural man does not receive the things of God for they are spiritually discerned. They are revealed to us. And so I'm up here uh, with enthusiasm preaching Christ today, and you're saying, I wonder who's playing football this afternoon. Because it, it's just not sweet to you. It, it's not something that feeds your soul. It doesn't nourish you. 
And my heart's desire for you is not to condemn you. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but through, that through him the war, uh, we might live. We might find real life. So my heart's desire is that God will open your eyes. As hard as I try, I can't do it. Believe in this person of the Son because the focus of our faith is on the person of the child who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But the second thing I want to again remind you of is the very last verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is an Old Testament way of saying the deliverance I'm going to bring, I'm going to do it. It's going to be by my grace. Isn't it interesting that God says to his people in Christ, he doesn't say, go out and do something valiant and save yourself, perform these tasks for your own deliverance. No, he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what's necessary for a Savior to be provided for you, for you to be rescued. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. I will bring this child into the world. I will bring about your salvation. Things are going to get worse for Israel before they get better. And Israel was going to have to wait 600 years for this prophecy to be fulfilled. But it was. And for everyone who believes on this child, there is hope and joy now. The second coming will be the time that we see the absolute totality and reality of what Isaiah was lifted out of time and space to see. And he speaks of, in the past tense, of things that haven't even happened yet. That's how certain the Bible is, because it's God's word of what's coming. And you can believe anything else you want to, and most people will and do. But the only truth there is, is in a person, Jesus, and in the word of the living God. And the rest of it is lies and hopeless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that speaks to us as people who have lived in darkness, as people who have struggled all the way through. We are uh, people who need enlightenment. We are people who need more than we know uh, your grace to open our eyes and show us the beauty, attractiveness, and suitability of Jesus for our hungry souls. We thank you for the peace we have in him. We thank you for the moments of joy where we our hearts just rise up and we just uh, almost explode with happiness knowing that we belong to you. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who have been blessed by you, recognizing that you are the fountain of every good and perfect gift. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.